We are excited again at the opportunity God has allowed us, the privilege of assembling in His name. And as is often the case, we're blessed not only with a good number of our membership at Pippin, but several visitors who've come our way this evening, as Brother Roger mentioned earlier. For that, we're certainly very thankful, and we hope that each of us, member and visitor alike, will be able to appreciate the blessing of a study of the portion of the Word of God and the singing of these songs and all the other aspects of service. And that indeed it will be well for us to be able to say it's been a joyful and great exercise for us to be present at the services of the Pippin Church of Christ on this Sunday afternoon. It is the case that as we gather and meet on this particular time, we do continue our series of lessons that we have begun some few weeks back in which we quite frankly were interested in looking at features that not only touch the subject of the declarations of the book of God, but also gave some thought to some of those features of physics. The science that studies matter and energy, the interrelationships between them, and the marvelous feature of discovery that has so often been found in that subject of physics. At this point throughout the series, we already have been reminded of a number of things, not the least of which would be some of these, that the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative, inspired Word of God, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. And as we appreciated the thought of that text, we learned that any presentation of science, of course, must fall in regard to its thinking under the banner of the truth that the Scriptures have set forth. In many occasions, we found that science does testify to what the Bible agrees to, but in so many cases, we found that that's not true, and when that happens, it's not the Bible that's in error, but it's always the thinking of man. It is the proclamations and declarations of man that aren't yet to the point of having reached the fullness of their truth, but yet God's book is always right. You'll notice that a few of the things we have seen that have touched this matter of foreknowledge, that on a number of occasions the Bible has affirmed something that scientists didn't find for centuries, maybe even millennia. And yet when it was discovered, and yet now we see it was in the Bible all along, it can't help but remind us that the author of this book was no man, no matter how great a scientist he may have been, but rather it was God. For, the, for those reasons, we did notice some things in the physics of meteorology, such as the currents in the air, the weight of the wind, and the other features that went with that. We also came to see the matters about the ocean, and the characteristics, how that what the Bible asserted came to be found by oceanographers and mariners and others. Finally, last week, we even looked at the matter of thermodynamics and atoms and light. Arguably three of the most recent developments in physics. Even Albert Einstein, maybe the most famous of all physicists of time, developed much of his theory about in, his, in consideration of light itself. When you and I gave thought to that at the end of the lesson last week, we paved the way for maybe yet another application in those matters, and that'll be the subject of our lesson this evening. As Lucas read just a moment ago from Psalm 19, verse number 1, we find there an interesting application until this day. It is one of the most noble in terms of the marvelous wonders of the things about us. I'm speaking about the cosmos. I'm speaking about that subject of astronomy. At this point, you and I could well appreciate the following. As you and I think about astronomy today, we imagine telescopes and we imagine the Hubble Space Telescope and we imagine some marvelously expensive and refined equipment 
that allow astronomers and other scientists to look deeply into the heavens to appreciate some of the things that are to be observed and witnessed. And yet, the book of God was written long before there were any telescopes, written long before there were any so-called sophisticated pieces of light-gathering equipment that would allow one to investigate and scrutinize the far-distant recesses of the universe. Wouldn't it be a fantastic thing if, in the book of God, we find matters declared that amazingly are found to be in harmony with what the most recent developments in astronomy happen to be? Tonight, I hope that we can take a brief journey looking at some of the features of astronomy as it's found in the Word of God. It might do well to start with at least a very interesting, overarching set of statements. This word astronomy, quite frankly, simply means the science of the heavenly bodies. And as one thinks about the study of all those amazing things in the heavens, be they planets or comets or stars, be they other various occurrences that take place, it can all be a fascinating thing. There are even black holes and pulsars and quasars and a vast range of other kinds of objects. All of them hold their own amazing characteristics. All of them hold their own features that characterize them as distinct from others. But all the while, we appreciate that there is a law that relates to them. And that's the subject, really, of this first slide. I would ask you to notice a little bit about this word. We've stated astronomy means the science of the heavenly bodies, but what about the actual meaning of the word, the original word from which the word astronomy comes? You'll notice that word, quite frankly, comes from the composition of two words, astron, which relates to star, and nomos, which relates to law. And quite frankly, in putting the two together, when one studies or gives thought to astronomy, one is giving thought to the law or arrangement of the stars. It's the second part of that word that seems to me to be at least worth a moment's reflection because it seems to have a great bearing on one of the conclusions we shall so quickly reach. Again, the arrangement or the law of the stars. Look at just a few of these considerations. When one looks at the stars, when one gives thought to their arrangement, their motion, their appearance, the appreciation of the nature of what makes them look as they do. Even scientists would agree that there's a law in force. It's not happenstance. It isn't random. It's not merely a jumbling together of what otherwise seems to have no regular arrangement at all. It is a law in place. With that in mind, look at some of these considerations. When I use the word law, let me just mention a few things in passing. If there is a law to something, one tends to think that there is a regular array, a regular pattern, something that's predictable, an appreciation by which there's repeatability. Think about the nature of astronomy in that regard. Scientists can now predict to the moment when the next lunar eclipse will be, where it will be seen, what places on earth will have the best view of it. Scientists can predict in a very calculated fashion when the next solar eclipse will be, where it will occur, who will have the best visibility to it, and the characteristic of what will go into the nature of it contrasted to other solar eclipses. Scientists, these astronomers, can again predict with great meticulousness when Halley's Comet will return again. It makes a return visit to this portion of our solar system every 76 years. 
Mankind has known that for millennia. And yet it returns to the day every 76 years just as if there was a law in place to govern it. Isn't that astounding? This star that maybe appears only once in most people's lifetime. I guess if it appears early enough in your life, you might live to see it twice. But once every 76 years, and yet we know exactly when it's going to be back. Isn't that remarkable? Or consider some other interesting features. As far as the planets of our solar system, even our youngsters learn from an early age to name them in order from the distance from the sun outward. Scientists know exactly how long it takes each one to revolve around the sun. They know exactly how long it takes each one of them to rotate on its axis. They know exactly the tilt of each one's axis and the other features of the length of the characteristics of it. All of that's known. In fact, consider this with me. The calculational ability of these features of God's universe are so well known now that back before all of the planets were discovered, there had been a discovery out to the planet Uranus. At that point, none of the others beyond it had yet been discovered. And yet, as scientists observed the orbit of Uranus, something appeared to be somewhat imprecise about it. Something appeared to be not exactly quite right, and so using nothing but pencil and paper. That was long before calculators, long before computers. They appeared to see that there had to be another planet that was perturbing the orbit of Uranus. They looked exactly where the calculation said it should be, and there it was. Neptune was discovered. All based on the marvelous wonder of the law in place with respect to God's universe. The law of the stars. We now understand the great features of it. And may I ask that we perhaps conclude some of these things. The Bible all along had made reference to the ordinances of the moon and the stars. In Jeremiah 31 verse number 35, In the days of the long ago, that noble and bold prophet of God marvelously made reference to not only the existence of these things, but that they obey an ordinance. There are the ordinances of the moon and the stars. And that word ordinance suggests various statutes, if you please, a law that these are obeying. Many scientists, in fact, through the years, at least those that are wise, as they appreciate this astronomical regularity, many of them have appreciated it's almost as if we can see the fingerprints of God. It's as if these laws of mathematics and physics that orchestrate this divinely characterized movement are reflections of the orderly nature of the God of heaven. Our God is a God of orderliness, isn't He? He doesn't wish anything to be done in confusion. Read 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and verse 40. And as you think about this orderliness of the universe, perhaps Psalm 136, verse 8 even has reference to that regularness associated with the sun itself. Mankind, I suppose, since the earliest eras in the human family, has seen this apparent, apparent movement of the sun across the sky in the daytime and how regular that movement seems. As we move through the lesson tonight, we'll have more to say about that. But for now, might we at least appreciate these last elements on that slide. This regularness that seems so easy now to see in the nature of the solar system and otherwise points us, doesn't it, to the fact that we've discussed moons, 
the various planets of our solar system, and in fact, even orderliness beyond the regions of our solar system. It's as if the wonderful mathematical structure that God has put in place was hinted at in the ordinances of the stars and the moon long, long ago in the Bible. I suppose in light of all of that, we might be prepared to look at a few of these matters as well. So far, I've been rather careful, or at least attempted to be so, to highlight the nature of the orderliness that we see. But now, what does that, quite frankly, imply? You and I know that where we see orderliness, there was an orderer, a force that put in place the order that you and I witnessed. When we see design inherent in something, the immediate conclusion is that there was a designer. The features that we see in this solar system, even down to the intricacies of planet Earth, seem to shout so loudly and so clearly about the designer in place who in fact put all of that in force. Look with me, if you would, at just a few of these things. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, the inspired writer so powerfully set forth for us the interesting feature that every house is builded by some man. There, even the inspired writer said where there's a house, there had to be a house builder. Houses don't build themselves. Intricate features about us don't just come into being in randomness or in happenstance. Where there is a house, there is a builder of the house. And where there is order, there is a force that caused the orderliness. And where there is design, there is obviously a designer. It's almost as if that's so easy to appreciate that the inspired writer quickly uses it to draw another point. For the builder of all things is God. That was his next idea. When you and I thus appreciate the marvelous order and wonder of this solar system, all of this mathematical exactness didn't come about by accident. It did not come about merely as a result of some cosmic explosion eons in the past. It did not come about as a result of random quantum fluctuations in some invisible fluid. It came about from the explicit purpose of the great designer God. And isn't it is still a fantastic feature to consider our ability and the opportunity He's given us as humans to at least appreciate something of what He did. It is true today when we study these matters in astronomy or physics, one of the things that we as teachers would do well to help our students appreciate that we are merely blessed to understand the characteristics and features. It's God that put this order in place. We are but privileged to understand a bit of its order and predict some things that might come from it. It is true that for all those reasons, look at how the Bible so innocently states God's role in these things. In Genesis chapter 1, in the midst of that listing of God's creative activities on days 1 and following, we find carefully on day number 4 that there are two great lights... The sun and the moon he fashioned, but notice the sun and moon and stars were all put in place that day. And as the infinite and majestic power of God put those things in place, we still today are merely attempting to understand the marvelous order inherent in it. I mentioned Einstein a few minutes ago. One of the quotes that often he appreciated himself is the grandeur of the universe and his attempt in general relativity to at least express some of the truth in it. It says, I can't help but try to regain some of the thinking of God. 
in the idea of what we're trying to appreciate. These equations that he wrote, he was merely striving to see in what framework did God create this universe. Maybe you and I will never fully understand all that despite the mathematics, but it's a marvelous thing to try to appreciate. We'll never be as smart as God, and we'll never understand the fullness of the intricacies, but just to see a few of the equations He embedded in the framework of what He made is still a fascinating thing to see. You'll notice that among those other verses in Psalm 8 verse 3, the psalmist there, David, merely said it this way, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and stars which thou hast made, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? I would ask you to notice the verb the inspired writer used, again, by the work of the Holy Spirit. He said, which thou hast ordained. That verb ordained, in the Hebrew it suggests and means to establish as an absolute matter a reality that came into being. It's not that these things formerly had some other kind of unproper shape and God merely reshaped them. He established them such that their existence, though before they were not, afterward they were. That's what our God did. And today we still marvel at that opportunity. For after all, science cannot do that today. It is still true that as we loaded last Sunday evening, the very first law of thermodynamics says neither matter nor energy can be created nor destroyed. But yet God did it. And when He brought these things into existence and into being, it is an impressive thing still to appreciate. You'll notice yet another passage in Hebrews 11 verse 3. As an element in faith, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. When you and I reflect on all of that, maybe we can use them to prompt us to the next movement, the next section, if you will, in the lesson this evening. As far as astronomy, there are a number of places in the Bible where something astronomically related is mentioned. We'll not nearly have the time to look at all of them, but just a few of them might be well worth a few moments' consideration. I thought we would rather interestingly mention these for now. Revisiting Genesis 1 verse 14, we notice that when those heavenly bodies were mentioned, the sun and the moon and the stars, it was stated that they would be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. God had a plan for them. They, of course, would obey completely what His plan was. You'll notice that among the things listed, for signs, we know that even from ancient civilizations, the Egyptians could look at the motion and know when to plant their crops. They could construct their calendars because they knew there was a regular motion of the heavenly bodies. They knew when the flood season was going to come. They knew when the other dry seasons were going to come, all because of the regular appearance of the stars against the background of the other distant parts of the universe. They knew all those things. Today, of course, we rely on our calendars that too are based on all the astronomy that's behind it. But look also at this with me. Quite often God has used those astronomical things to teach and to emphasize great truths and His complete rule over them. 
We remember in Joshua chapter 10, the sun stood still for a whole day. God made that happen. And you and I know that miracle was brought about by the absolute desire of God to bring about His will on that occasion for Joshua to have opportunity to complete the battle on that day. Now you and I notice that based on what we appreciate concerning Newton's universal law of gravitation and otherwise, we can't fathom the sun just being still in the sky and the motions of the various aspects of the earth to remain fixed and frozen for a day. But we know God upholds all things by the word of His power, Hebrews 1 verse 3. And we understand full well that He is in complete control of this universe and every feature in it. He thus could do that. And later, didn't He do something similar in the days of Hezekiah? When we remember that in fact there was a movement backward in the sundial. The same thing, we appreciate our God in full control of all those things. But yet, look at some other things that might be mentioned. In Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1, it was there we find that, of course, heralding the birth of the Master Himself, the wise men following that particular star, they were able to, of course, locate and find where Jesus was because the star led them to Him. Our God was in control of all those things. As our God was in control of all of them, perhaps look at yet another example. The text goes on to say for seasons. Not only does Job, but also other inspired writers such as Acts 27 verse 20 even makes reference to the seasons and even mariners for long ages have been able to trace their movements by the watching of the stars, knowing what season of the year it is and where those stars ought to appear. When you and I think about that even till this day, isn't it interesting that perhaps one final thing the text does say for days and for years. We recognize even now that this motion of earth that we call a day, of course, is tailored to the rotation on its axis and against the backdrop of the distant stars, we can appreciate that motion. That particular time period we call the year, earth's revolution around the sun. But God put all that in place long before any astronomers fully realized the mathematical intricacy and beauty of it. It would be all of us, I think, with a desire to appreciate the scientific truth housed in this book long before scientists really fully understood it. In fact, in light of all those things, isn't it safe to say that the heavenly bodies in all the marvelous aspects of them, testify to the greatness of the one that made them and should lead every thinking person who considers them to appreciate the marvelous force behind them and the one that put them in place. It's almost a tragedy for an individual who is a scientist to peer into those heavens, to give some thought to them and then to claim that there's no God there and to claim that there's no infinite hand of majesty behind them. Such has to be regarded as foolishness of the highest order. It still is true that the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. Psalm 53 verse 1. That statement reminding us of that perhaps brings us to some other astronomical considerations. These, I thought, would be a few, an additional few of those that the Bible lists for us to consider. As we've looked at some of the aspects of this series... It has been interesting to me at least, and I hope so for you as well, to think about some of the scientific truths that are recognized now 
that at least at the time the Bible was written would not have been regarded as scientifically accurate. You and I have been reminded of how great the power was that, of course, wrote the sacred scriptures. And the fact that thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever, to quote Psalm 119, verse 160. Look at just a few of the things before us. The number of the stars. I suppose as far back as Hipparchus especially, the first one of whom we have any record who made a detailed study about the number of the stars and the nature of how they appear. Hipparchus, of course, lived now well over 2,000 years ago. And of course, long before there were any telescopes, he estimated somewhere on the order of fewer than 3,000 total number of stars. That was his estimate. You and I know that these centuries removed since that time, the number now of stars, if you ask a typical astronomer, would be somewhere on the following order. Most think that there's somewhere between a hundred billion and a trillion galaxies, and each and every galaxy contains somewhere between a hundred billion and a trillion stars. So if you multiply the two numbers together, you get somewhere between ten sextillion and one septillion stars. That's ten to the twenty-two. The number one with twenty-two zeros after it is the number of stars, is at least most modern estimates. That's a vast, vast number of stars. That is an incredibly large number of stars. And yet, as you and I imagine, what else, if God allows this universe to continue, what else will man discover about these stars? That's just the current astronomical estimate. Will it be found someday the universe contains even far more stars than scientists currently think? It wouldn't surprise me any. At the very least, we can say, look at some of these things in the Bible. In Psalm 147, verse 4, we have there the explicit statement that God knows the name of every one of the stars. And furthermore, He carefully tells us that the number is not unlimited. There's not an infinite number of stars. There is some finite number. And our God of heaven knows every single one of them. The vastness of the number we've learned already staggers our mind, but yet the God of heaven is thoroughly aware and firmly acquainted with every feature and every aspect of every one of those stars. Not only that, you'll notice yet another point. There are some other passages that describe it like this. In Jeremiah 33:22, for instance, the number of the stars, though God knows what it is, is larger than what man can number. Our estimates will not lead us to appreciate and name with exactness the location and detail of all of them. That reminds us of even some of those statements in the book of Genesis, doesn't it? Where there we are reminded that Abraham's seed, it was to him promised, your seed will be as the stars of the heaven and as the sand on the seashore. His seed would be vast, great and large indeed, and so is the number of stars. Not only is that number of stars so vast, some other features are still astounding when you and I at least think about their implications. Astronomers have long since been able to, again, direct their telescopes to the various regions of the heavens. And of course, there's a lot of spaces that one can choose to study. There is a particular region, though, that garnered quite a bit of attention some number of years ago. 
It's that region right around Polaris, the so-called North Star. As you look at Polaris, oddly enough, you find, first of all, that it's not just a single star. There's a triplet of stars in Polaris. But not only that, you find that behind it, you seemingly see virtually no other stars at all. It's as if there's an empty place. It's as if there's a region in which there are almost no other things besides simply the North Star. The reason that seems to gauge and garner so much attention for us is Job 26 verse 7, where there the inspired writer simply made note of that thou hangest the earth upon nothing, and the empty space exists in the north. In the north? That's exactly the location of Polaris, the North Star. And yet there's an empty place there. How did Job know this? Long before there was any telescope, long before there was any capability, in fact, of witnessing anything beyond Polaris. Because after all, Polaris, in terms of brightness, is one of the brightest stars in the northern sky, so bright that it, in fact, masks anything else. How is it that Job knew there were no other stars in the north? You and I realize that Job knew that, the inspired writer knew that, because there was a great being of infinite wisdom who told him this and who allowed, of course, him to record and, and make record of that truth. But you'll notice that as you give thought to the character of that verse, Job 26 verse 7, it perhaps would be well to notice another aspect found in that same passage. Hangeth the earth upon nothing. To those in the ancient world, of course, that was not only far-fetched, it was unbelievable. One didn't recognize any existent forces other than contact. And therefore, some of the ancient civilizations had what to you and me seem rather fanciful explanations for what it was that supported earth. Some, in fact, thought that earth was supported on a stack of turtles. Some thought that the Greek god Atlas held earth up on his back. Think of that what you will. The point is the ancients recognized that something had to provide a support for the earth. But the Bible said that the earth is hanging on nothing. I'm sure you and I have seen the pictures of when the astronomers, or rather when the astronauts, turn back their camera toward earth and all you see is this ocean of blue and the clouds of white and the other land regions of green, and around the earth is nothing, hanging there in space on nothing. Our God did that, putting in place the forces that allow it to maintain the motion that it does and allow it to appreciate the regularity of that motion all the while hanging there on nothing. Rather interesting to consider it, isn't it? And yet the Bible said that a long, long time ago. Another thing about that, though, that captures our attention, surely, is the feature of the shape of earth. After all, many of the ancients, of course, had no idea what shape earth was. Some thought it was flat. Some thought it occupied some other rather unusual shapes. However, when we give thought to some of the ancients, the first that I'm aware of, at least, were the ancient Greeks, and there were, now not all of them, but certainly at least two of them did at least theorize that the earth was round. But remember, the ancient Greeks, in terms of that class of people, I might invite you to think with me about the Bible for just a moment. 
After all, many, even as late as the sailing ships of the days of Columbus and otherwise, some even thought, Columbus, you sail far enough, you'll sail off the edge, for the earth is flat. But yet think back centuries prior to that, to a passage like Isaiah 40, verse 22. Here in the heart of the major prophet Isaiah, long, long before the days of Christopher Columbus, and long, long before the days, in fact, even of those Greeks I mentioned earlier, here was a statement in the Bible that made reference to the circle of earth. The circle of earth, and that ancient Hebrew word means circuit. That which is round and can be completed. The circuit of earth. Could it be that God in the long ago testified that the earth, in fact, was round? In Proverbs chapter 8, verse 27, we find another reference to the sphericity, the roundness, if you please, of planet earth. You and I now realize in terms of this roundness, the nature of earth, that that truly is rather astounding. To think about these things in the Bible so long ago, scientists today, of course, sometimes laugh at those that believe in the Bible. You're a believer in the Bible... Sometimes maybe you've been ridiculed that way, as I have. Maybe you've been made fun of that way. You really still believe in the Bible? Hasn't science proven the Bible to be wrong? And you and I with straight face can say, when? Where has the Bible ever been wrong and science has found it to be wrong? There isn't a single documented case. In fact, isn't it true that on so many occasions it was man that was wrong and the Bible was the one that all along was right? And after the fact, man came to realize it. Perhaps as you look at yet another, this particular modern philosophy of astronomy, including the Big Bang and otherwise, helps us see, doesn't it, that it is an interesting, interesting thing what kind of theories one can come up with if you're first willing to throw God out of the equation. You can come up with almost anything and there's almost no bound to what you're willing to suggest if you have no binding to the Bible and no binding to the truth of what God has set forth. For that reason, we see all kinds of strange and whimsical theories that man has set forth, not only in astronomy but in almost all other realms and regions of science. I hope that at least this other lesson tonight has reminded us about astronomy has set forth a law of the stars. And the Bible all along has testified to the reality of this law and the greatness of the one that put these laws in place. In fact, as we come to this last concluding slide in the lesson this evening, I've mentioned so far about general relativity and the presentations of Einstein and others on the nature of what you and I would call gravity. It is still fascinating that day by day as new discoveries are made, and there still isn't anything that contradicts the truth set forth in this book. This book is believable, every word of it. Even those matters that touch subjects of science, subjects of geography, subjects of history, subjects of philosophy or sociology, all of them, whatever it decrees and declares, is absolutely believable, trustworthy, and should be regarded in the highest way. Tonight, as we've looked at astronomy, we've learned there's design in it, and that designer is the great God of heaven. Every time we look up into the sky on a 
warm summer's night and appreciate those stars, it should remind us of God. Every time we look into the heavens and we perhaps appreciate a comet or some other shooting star, it should remind us of the orderly one that put all these things in place. And may we say that if the universe, as we now appreciate it, testifies to this degree of beauty and testifies to this degree of order, what must heaven be like? What must it be like to appreciate the absolute place where there's no need for the sun or the moon because the glory of God and the Christ is all that will be needed? Revelation 21, verses 23 through 25. You and I can only look forward to that day and recognize that He's given us enough evidence here to where we should have the utmost confidence in His existence and the utmost confidence in the declarations of this book. A hymn of encouragement has been selected tonight. And if things are not well with your soul this evening, let astronomy lead you by character of its existence to the nature of the one that not only put that in place, but also made the proper recognitions for the saving of your soul. Astronomy, as great as it is, won't save your soul or mine. There's no saving blood in it. He sent His Son to make that possible. And so there came in a special time about 2,000 years ago when in the fullness of time God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law, Galatians 4.4. And as He came, He purchased the church, shedding of His blood, and paved the way that you and I might be saved forevermore. That's conditioned on our obedience to His will. Have you attended to that fact? Have you attended to that requirement? If you have, praise be for that act in obedience and continue that walk in faith until death, Revelation 2.10. If you, though, have not yet attended to that, don't delay any longer. There may not be a tomorrow. Today may be the last day. Or it may well be that you have become a member of the body of Christ at one time but have not remained faithful. Come back to the one who in faith put all this universe in place and he wants you to be just as faithful as those stars. If you haven't been, why not begin that walk in faith again tonight? If we could be of assistance to you this very evening, our admonition would be for you at once to obey while you have the time and the opportunity and do so at once, even now while we together stand and sing.